Let's open our Bibles to Romans 5. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, we'd like to collect those from you and be assured of our prayers for you this week. We're talking this morning about the big picture when suffering comes. And there's not a lot of room for entertaining ideas of suffering in the Christian life among many. In their book, Health, Wealth, and Happiness, Has the Prosperity Gospel Overshadowed the Gospel of Christ? David Jones and Russell Woodbridge addressed the devastating effects of the prosperity gospel, not only in the United States, but globally. Jones and Woodbridge write that the prosperity gospel is nothing more than using a formula to get what you want from God. Whereas biblical Christianity is God using and empowering the believer to do God's will. In their book, they noted that in Nigeria, 96% of those surveyed indicated or who profess faith in God either completely agreed or mostly agreed that God will grant material riches if one has enough faith. Believers in India, 82%. Guatemala, 71%, giving similar responses. Apollo White once said that God is not magnified when you're broken, busted, or disgusted, which may sound clever, but what if you're the Macedonian believers in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and you give out of your poverty? What if you're Stephen right before you're stoned? What if you're Paul and Silas and you're singing hymns at midnight in a Philippian jail after being beaten with rods for being faithful to God? There's no room for this kind of obedience in a prosperity gospel. And the core beliefs really can be summarized with some um, categorical pillars, a distorted view of God, an elevation of mind over matter, thinking that somehow we have the power to create things by speaking them, an exalted view of humankind, a focus on health and wealth, an unorthodox view of salvation. Salvation is, is, is not placing one's faith in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who died for the sins of humanity on the cross. Rather, salvation is self-generated, self-generated mystical experience which involves channeling God's power for personal wealth, personal happiness, and success. I appreciated Jones and Woodbridge's corrective. Yes, God is incredibly gracious and merciful. God is all-powerful and does provide for His people. Yet God does not promise material prosperity for all people. God promises Himself. God promises Himself. Which is why the prayer of Agur in Proverbs 30 should be a treasure to us. Some years ago, the prayer of Jabez sold 14 million copies. I don't think the prayer of Agur would do as well. But in Proverbs 30, two things I ask of the Lord, Agur said, two things I ask of the Lord, deny them not to me before I die. What is it that you want, Agur? Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with a food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Lord, give me my portion. Learning contentment. As we look at how this intersects the gospel of grace in the book of Romans, the gospel has been front and center in the preaching of the Apostle Paul. 
He said in chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. He is not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. And with our transition into Romans 5, he has presented the blessedness of being justified by faith. Sinners, high and low, rich and poor, from the very beginning have made, been made right with God one way and one way only, and that is by faith. Beginning with Abraham held up as the example for us in Scripture, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's always been true. The just shall live by faith, a saving faith, a relying upon the truths and promises of God, believing not only the facts about who Jesus is through biblical testimony, but resting in him personally for your salvation. It's not by works of righteousness which you've done, but according to his mercy, that he has saved you. And so Paul in Romans 5 makes that turn here and he says because of this wonder of justification, being declared innocent in the courtroom of heaven, we have peace with God. We have grace in which we stand and we have hope that is more than a roll of the dice. It's a certainty. Because of God's promises, Namely, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We all need to focus on this. That to have faith in Jesus Christ means your warfare with God is over. This, is, this reference in verse 1 is not speaking of a heart of tranquility. Although that comes to the believer resting in God. For we're not to be anxious for anything, but by everything we're to make our requests known to God. And that His peace will come to us. He will keep us in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on Him. But this is referring to warfare of what it means to be at odds with God, lost in our sins, committed to the ways of this world, blown here and there like every, uh, by every wind of doctrine, um, defiant to His commands. And what happens in salvation is that our heart of stone is turned to a heart of flesh and we begin, our desires change and we begin to want what God wants and love what He loves that is the miracle of salvation. And so we're no longer at war with him. We have peace with him that we might walk in his ways and enjoy fellowship with him forever. And he also mentions here a grace in which we stand. Not only the grace that saves us and comes to us, gives God's best to us, even to those of all of us who don't deserve it. But it, this grace speaks of God's strength and favor in every area of life coming to us in our needs, coming to us in times of weakness, coming to us when we wonder, if, how am I going to make it to the finish line? He comes. He who has begun a good work in you will continue that work until the day of Jesus Christ. And then hope, this hope in verse 3, uh, rather in verse 2, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And this hope is not, well, it might be or might not be, this hope is a certainty. When you see that in your Bible, see it as a certainty based on the promises of God who cannot lie. It gives hope to us. I don't know about you, but there are seasons of life where I just need a massive dose of hope. I went to the hospital yesterday to visit members of our church, they need hope. 
in light of the news they've received. I've mentioned I've been to three funerals in the last few weeks. There's one tomorrow. Um, as Jerry Tomple uh, passed away, and we want to come alongside Wendy and the family and pray God's best for them. When we gather for a Christian funeral, that is a, that is a time to really reflect on our hope. Because Jesus has risen from the dead and because he's the resurrection and the life, those who believe in him shall live also even though we die. And ultimately for the believer, that beatific vision by which is referred to in 1 John 3, that we shall see him as he is, is the longing of every true believer. I long to be in the presence of my God And that's all well and good, isn't it? We can be thankful and rejoice in, our, in this peace with God. We can rejoice in this grace in which we stand, which is available for us. And um, we can be grateful for the hope that is ours. These are priceless treasures given to us. But notice in verse 3, he says, not only that. So surely he's going to outline more blessings that we're going to enjoy, right? That's not what he says. Not only are we thankful for those things and rejoice in them, but he says in verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, all of us are averse to that. I think that's, you know, we, we want to avoid suffering. And this isn't a call to be a masochist where we run into suffering. This is this, this comes free by living in this world, doesn't it? Paul says, in the Christian life, not only do we rejoice in the hope and the blessings of God that he gives to us, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's the first point this morning that I want to see from this text. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. This is a matter of perspective. Because every time we gather as a church, there's, there's among us those who are suffering. And maybe that's not you today. Maybe, I mean, Pastor, I'm on top of the mountain. Things are going my way. Hold on. Life is not lived on the mountain. By God's design, He brings things into our life that causes us to long for Him and to wean ourselves from this world. God is doing something in our sufferings. He's transforming the way we go through trials and troubles through teachings like this. Um, it saves us from pragmatics where, well, if it works, then it must be right. And some people treat Christianity that way. I'll go to church and maybe things will go better for me. And there's a season where somebody shows openness to the Bible, openness to the Word, and they're among the people of God and church life. And then a downturn comes. Pressures come. And they think, and well, that didn't work. And to treat Jesus like a silver bullet, which we mention often, don't be... Deluded by silver bullet answers. I watched the podcast. We went to counseling. 
No silver bullets here. Just the saving faith in the living God through Jesus Christ. And that whatever comes into your life comes into your life by His appointment. In His timing. He's always got His hand on the thermostat of your life. We rejoice in our sufferings. Interesting Greek word, thlipsis, to press, to crush, to squeeze. The idea is being um, pressured. All things that make your life hard. Let's start maybe from the least to the greater ones. My transmission went out. I don't know what I'm going to do. We got one vehicle and a tribe of kids, and I don't know how, they, how this is going to work out. It could be accident, an accident, a calamity. Whether it's COVID or cancer. I remember talking with a woman who was sent our way days after Hurricane Katrina um, brought a host of multitudes of people to Ascension Parish, and I can remember talking with her in the back, as we did to over 400 in the span of six weeks, and uh, she lost her business, she lost her life's investment, she lost her home, she lost everything, and she was so angry, and she said to me, you're a pastor, where was God in all this? And I gently said, where he's always been, on the throne. And could it be that all of this calamity you're faced has brought you to a place in your life where you're actually able to consider the gospel? What God has done through Jesus Christ? That he suffered more than we could ever suffer? That we might be delivered of our sins and the punishment from it? To walk in newness of life? And I'll never forget, she said, I never thought of it that way. That's a fresh perspective, isn't it? That we have a God who's very acquainted with sufferings. In fact, it was said of Jesus, he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I think of the persecuted church around the world. I have a little devotional calendar that I flip on a daily basis um, that brings that to mind. And praying for places all over the world that are in need of uh, prayer and help as people are suffering, and certainly the persecuted church. I remember in my travels to China having a conversation with a pastor whose wife had just been taken for a forced mandatory abortion because it was her second child. How do you, how, how do you process that? Intense sufferings where believers are taken and tortured to renounce their faith. Women brutally mistreated. Children sold into slavery for the price of lunch at Chick-fil-A. And so Paul's here. He, he, maybe we're thinking that this is, these are the words of somebody who's not really rooted and grounded. No, Paul is not, he's not writing as an observer. He's writing as a participant. In fact, if you'll go with me to 2 Corinthians, keep your marker here, and we'll make our way to 2 Corinthians 12. And we come to that passage of the thorn in the flesh, and even before that, he unpacks all the things that he endured as an apostle. He, in chapter 11, verse 20, um, 
24, even backing up to 23. Am I talking like a madman? (laughs) Maybe you were thinking that a moment ago as we were thinking about rejoicing in sufferings. Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 11, 23, am I talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death? Five times I received from the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. And then he talks about dangers everywhere. It's hard to trust anybody because they were plotting against me. Without in hunger and in thirst, often without food. And then going into chapter 12, he tells us about a vision that he received. Going into the third heaven, and so exalted was this vision, he speaks to, of himself in the third person. I once knew a man who was taken up into the third heaven. And it was such a revelation that God said, I'm going to insert a thorn into your life. Paul. Oh no, not me. You're the the one who brought me into the third heaven. No, I'm going to put a thorn in your life like a well-driven nail. And listen to Paul process this, picking up in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Same idea. I'm boasting of my rejoicing in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How many Christian leaders do you hear lead like that? So Paul's not speaking as an observer, say, writing to the Romans and to us. You know, this, this is a good way to think. Now, this is what he's living in his own life. This confronts a lot of wrong thinking and a lot of bad theology, which goes something like, because you are a Christian, your difficulties are solved. If anybody's told you that, they've lied to you. That as a a Bible-believing Christian, you have all the answers. We don't have all the answers. We know who the truth is, but we don't have all the answers to the complexities of life. Our hope is in Him. It goes like this as well. If you have problems, you must have sin issues in your life. Who doesn't? In one respect. But that's... That's like the counsel of Job's friends. Well, surely, Job, there must be sin in your life. There wasn't. He was the righteous man from us who loved God with all of his heart. And and for reasons that were never disclosed to Job, God brought this suffering into his life. And Job would say at the end of it all, you know, I, I once heard of you with my ears, But now, I could see you with my eyes. 
I see with my eyes. He learned more about God and ended his days with praise and thanksgiving. We all try to balance the truth that when our lives are aligned in obedience with God's ways, that there's blessedness to it, right? (laughs) You trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust Him and to obey Him. Psalm 1 tells us the, the, the blessed man lives in according to God's Word, and he's like the tree that is planted by the streams of water. There's blessings that come with obedience to Christ. We're not minimizing that. But let us not think that God has nothing to do with our sufferings. That is not a comfort to me at all. He has nothing to do with it. I remember Charles Spurgeon sharing this episode. He had uh, tremendous gout. And uh, it would debilitate him. And uh, he once wrote, you know, if I, I didn't know and believe that God was behind the trials of my life, I would, go, I would go mad. In developing this theme, Paul would say later in Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not wor- worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. So suffering under God's sanctifying hand to strengthen our faith, to remind us that we're not to trust um, in ourselves, to wean us from dependence on this world, to reveal that we, uh, what we really love, to teach us to value God's blessings, to enable us to better endure future trials and difficulties, to help us develop enduring strength so we might even that we might be used for even greater kingdom service years ago i read about bb warfield who was a world renowned theologian who taught at princeton university or excuse me princeton seminary for almost 34 years until his death in 1921 and many people are aware of his, of his famous writings and and works, one being the inspiration and authority of the Bible, which was really a watershed work uh, for committed Christians in the 20th century. But what most people don't know is that in 1876, at the age of 25, he married Annie Pierce Kincaid. And they went on a honeymoon to Germany. And during a fierce storm, Annie was struck by lightning and paralyzed. After caring for her for 39 years, Warfield laid her to rest in 1915. And because of her extraordinary needs, Warfield seldom left his home for more than two hours at a time during most of their marriage. Now here was a shattered dream. You're on your honeymoon and your wife becomes confined to a wheelchair. She was never healed There was no kingship in Egypt at the end of the story. Only the spectacular patience and faithfulness of one man to one woman through 38 years of what was never planned. At least not planned by man. And so the text says this produces endurance. Endurance. The Christian life is not a 100-meter sprint. It's a marathon. 
that ends at the feet of Jesus Christ. And this word in the text, endurance, that it produces endurance, is an interesting word. It's difficult to express with just one English word. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. That means you're not going to quit. And this is God's grace to keep us running. It's a difficult word to express with just one English word. The word is used frequently in the New Testament, often referring to strong, unwelcome toil and hardship. The, The kind that can make life extremely difficult, painful, grievous, and shocking, even to the point of death. Many references in the New Testament to hupomeno, hupomone, I'm sorry, hupomone. Endurance, coming under the load. William Barclay, who sometimes offers helpful thoughts, uh, once wrote that Hupamone does not simply accept and endure, like Grin and Barrett, that's not what it's talking about. There's, there's always a forward looking in it. It is said of Jesus that for the joy set before him, he endured what? The cross, despising the shame. That is Hupamone. Christian steadfastness. It's the mark of true saving faith. Where else can we go but to Him? He has the words of eternal life. It is the courageous acceptance of everything that life can do to us and the transmuting of even the worst event into another step on the way upward. Notice with me secondly that there's a cluster of things here that rejoicing in our sufferings brings about endurance in the Christian life. It also brings character. Endurance, character, and hope, verse 4. A pile of reasons to be faithful to the Lord and to seek Him in times of struggle. Character, faith is tried and, that, that is tried and tested Proved and approved by God, faith is producing a proven, tested character, and it encourages hope. Henry Martin, the famed missionary, once wrote in his journal, let me be taught that the first great business on earth is the sanctification of my own soul, being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It's amazing how God will bring this about in our life. Watch His methods. Watch His ways, how He ruthlessly perfects whom He royally elects, how He hammers us and hurts us, but with precision to form us into what? The image of Christ. Do you not understand that He plucked us from the muck and mire of our sin and placed us on His eternal trophy case to shine for all of eternity, but part of His process And leading to that is that we're being conformed now. Which means that we don't live always on the mountain. There is a valley of the shadow of death by which we walk in seasons of life. God's always bringing things to refine our character. I once read of a British fisherman who would troll the North Sea for mackerel. And his fishing expeditions would yield abundant catches. But this was before refrigeration. And many times he would be so far away from shore that the mackerel would die on the trip back to market. 
But on one particular trip, the fisherman caught a small shark in one of his nets and had to dump it in the tank along with the other fish. And the, the shark chased the fish around <laughs> all the while uh, returning to the shoreline. And he found that having the shark in the tank kept the fish alive. Isn't it amazing how God puts sharks in our tank to alert us, to be aware of His promises to us? He is a God who keeps us in perfect peace, whose mind is fixed upon Him, to follow Him. And this character really comes to how are we going to live, doesn't it? Should we be challenged by that every time we gather for worship? How am I going to live? Who am I going to live for? This brings us to the whole issue of ethics and character in our life, our sexual ethic. Am I going to honor God with my body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit? My work ethic, my finances what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do with my Christian liberty? How will I follow Jesus Christ who is my life and who is my wisdom is ultimately what this comes down to. And this builds hope in me. It builds hope in me. God will see me through every trial all the way home. He will never leave me or forsake me. And applying these truths and challenges of this passage, pursue, we're to pursue with all of our heart to be strong in the grace that is found in Christ Jesus, to be alert to the dangers that we experience every day, to be diligent to live our life for the glory of God, and to be hopeful in our anticipation of the Lord's return. That when we suffer, it's not a bumbling of our Heavenly Father. Notice with me, Finally, number three, no shame where God's love has come. Verse five, and hope does not put us to shame. That is an interesting statement. Living in hope, which we cannot see, will not lead you to shame. Now, Paul uses this word shame. It's translated in other translations, disappoint. But there's a difference between disappointment and shame, and I think shame's the better rendering here. It's referring back to Isaiah 28, 16. Paul mentions this in Romans 9, 33, we will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, Romans 10, 11. And so, we're to, we're to exalt and rejoice in our sufferings, and here he says, we will not be put to shame by hoping in the Lord. Now, let's take a step back and just think from a worldview that may be a little bit of a challenge to us, and that is um, that in, in the Bible, often what drove the decisions that were being made or the life that was being lived was this honor-shame culture, which is very much alive and well in many Asian countries right now, other cultures but this honor-shame culture is throughout the ancient Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's woven through the Bible. And in this, we, we see, for instance, in the book of Esther, uh, the king uh, has insomnia, and he calls his servants to come and read from the records 
to try to put him to sleep. And so he's hearing and he hears about a man named Mordecai who foiled a plan on, on his assassination. And so the king says, has he been honored? And uh, the servant said, no. And so this brings in Haman, who's the arch enemy of Mordecai. And so uh, Haman um, is wanting to bring honor to himself and uh, thinks it's him that the king is inquiring about. What should I do, the king asks. And Haman says, bring the best robe, the stallion, the ring, and ride him through town. Well, the whole scenario flips because it's Mordecai who's doing that and Haman's having to watch this to his ever-loving shame. So in an honor-shame uh, culture, the greatest thing that can happen to you is public honor. And the worst thing that can happen to you is public shame. And so I think of that, again, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Uh, he's getting ready to kill himself because the earthquake had opened the prison doors and one of the worst shames that could come to a Roman soldier was to have prisoners entrusted to you and you lose them or they escape. And so he's ready to run the sword through him and Paul says, wait, wait. Spared his life. Headed for shame. Paul says, hope does not put to shame. And by the way, the glorious outcome with the, with the Philippian jailer, you know, he finally, he, he looks at Paul and Silas and says, what must I, sirs, what must I, I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your household. Paul says, hope does not put to shame. What that means is you trust Jesus Christ, you follow Jesus Christ, you give your heart to the promises of God, and there will not be a time in the courts of heaven where you'll ever be ashamed. People will try to heap shame on you now. We hear that in academics, you fool, you simpleton. Believing in these ancient myths, you can't believe the Bible. And then list a whole reason, list of reasons why it's flawed. But for the Christian, we're convinced of its truthfulness and rest in its promises. And we will never be ashamed. It doesn't mean we won't face hostility. It doesn't mean that we won't face adversity. It doesn't mean that we won't face persecutions. Our enemies will never have the final word is what it's saying our God will never put us to shame. How could He that in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? And why is this so? Why will we have no shame? Look at the last part of verse 5. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. When did that happen? When you were saved and you began to taste and see that the Lord is good? God poured out His love into you, that you would remember His promises, that you would experience His presence, that you would have comfort in your heart, that He would guide your steps, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And I love the description of the Spirit given to the believer. There's no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says that if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to Christ. 
And the Spirit of the living God is a down payment within us, an earnest payment. And I love the beautiful description of that, that the joys that we experience in this life as Christians, seeing Him answer prayer, watching Him meet, uh, meet needs, feeling His presence and worship, and the thrill of our soul that sometimes brings us to tears as we feel and sense our God in a close way, that's a down payment. That's a partial payment of what awaits us in His presence. So this love of God has been poured out by the Holy Spirit. And that's what sustains us when life is hard. Everyone in the world seems to be trusting basically in the obedience of one of, one of two sources. If I were to ask, what is your hope of eternal life? Many people say, well, I never hurt anyone. Really? Ever? That's what you're trusting in? I've never violated the golden rule honestly now. Really? I've tried to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. Well, nobody can do that. That's our point. I've always given to others and helped others out. Always? Really? That's what you're hoping in? Sounds like a rotten bridge to me. If so, you're trusting in your righteousness to get to heaven. The problem is there's none righteous, not even one. And sin taints even the best efforts that we bring. That's why we need Christ. We need the work of another who is righteous to be credited on our behalf. We need the righteousness of a perfect Savior by faith in Him alone that gives us righteous legal standing before the judgment of God. That's what we need. That's what you need if you're without Christ. And we would invite you to come and enjoy us and join us as we seek Him together. Would you bow with me in prayer? We rejoice in suffering because it is the path to spiritual maturity and glory. The great saints of God all agree. Ask Abraham and he'll, he'll point us to Mount Moriah. Ask Jacob and he'll tell us about Bethel and that stone pillow where it all began for him in his walk with God. If we were to ask Joseph, he would tell us about the dungeon where God ministered to him for years. If we were to ask Moses, he would remind us of his trials with Pharaoh. If we were to ask David, he would tell us of songs that came in the night as he fled for his life. The Apostle Peter would speak of his denial. The Apostle John of the island of Patmos. And Jesus of the cross. Blessings are poured out in bitter cups. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people that rejoice in our sufferings. 
which would make us a stronger church and that you would produce within us an endurance of what may come and Lord that our character would be like Christ and that our hope would grow stronger and stronger as we live for you. In these closing moments, I pray that you would open hearts and minds to the truth and that we would be in full surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In these closing moments, it's an opportunity for us to yield ourselves to God. I don't know how this message or this worship service has ministered to you. What a great opportunity uh, to surrender to him. That's why we sing. That's what this time is for. If you need someone to pray with you or counsel together, uh, we would welcome that opportunity. Let's stand together as we sing.